0: Hey everybody, it's Dr. B and this is module two and it's our third class and it's called Ghosts from the Past, Intergenerational Transmission of Trauma. This is one of my favorite topics and we're gonna dig really deep into this topic in module three. So this is module two, you're in the Intermediate Trauma-Informed Care and Resilience Certification Program. This is class three, so you're almost done, you're halfway through. And this class is called Ghosts from the Past, Intergenerational Transmission of Trauma. And what we're gonna learn in this class, the class objectives are, what the heck is intergenerational trauma? And how does the past impact the present and or the future? The impact of toxic stress on parents and their children, the difference between ghosts from the past and trauma. And then, of course, delusional optimism, the podcast. Don't feed the trauma cycle. Okay, so first off, what is intergenerational trauma? You know, isn't it enough to have trauma just firsthand? No, people's trauma, it's like the it's like the never-ending song. One person's past. Impacts the next generation and so on and so on and so on. I know that sounds scary and it sounds unmanageable in a lot of ways, but once we understand it, elevate it to consciousness, and become aware of how it impacts us, that's how we heal and stop those trauma cycles from moving forward. So the direct passing on of ideas. Patterns of behavior and even genetic messaging that keeps adversity alive and thriving from one generation to the next. That's the definition of intergenerational trauma. And it's so pervasive and powerful that it actually plays into our genetic messaging from one generation to the other. It doesn't change our DNA but it can activate the on or off switch of a particular gene in our genome. So, but that's for module three. Don't worry if that sounds really scientific. You'll understand it in easy terms in the next uh, module. Okay, let me tell you a story about newspaper wrapping. Okay, so there's a family and they always wrap all their gifts in newspaper and then they put lovely bows on them and whatever, and, and they've done this from one generation to the next generation to the next generation. And somebody finally asked like, hey, what's the deal? Like, why do, why do we always wrap our, wrap our presence in newspaper? Because, you know, think about it, we're moving to a much more uh, technology-based ways of getting our news. And so newspaper is a little bit harder to get your hands on today. However, so the story, a great, you know, a grandparent, an elder in the family said, well, this is how we, this is why, because way back a hundred years ago or so, so-and-so worked at the newspaper and we were very poor. They were very poor. And so instead of buying wrapping paper or using something else as wrapping material, they would bring home the extra newspapers and use that as wrapping paper. And we decorated it up with bows or something else to make it lovely. But then that that tradition or that practice just carried on from one generation to the next that our family wraps presents with newspaper. And nobody really knew why. It was just an intergenerational passing of information that changed the behavior of multiple people. And it didn't really have, the, the story was not a conscious story for everybody. So you can see, you can think about intergenerational transmission. We just do things because everybody in our past did them that way before and we don't necessarily think about why they did them. And so in this particular family, somebody in the, in the family worked at a newspaper and started this practice as a really practical way of saving money. And it just carried on into the 21st century. So interesting. Attachment and ACEs, Adverse Childhood Experiences means the lack of normal attachment to parents would cause behavioral and physical problems in childhood and possibly continuing throughout an adult's life. So if we think about it, attachment, as we attach to somebody, there can be problems that persist across the lifespan because if an adult has adverse experiences, they become more vulnerable to physical and psychosocial and mental disorders. So when a child attaches to an adult who has a history with adversity or adverse childhood experiences that have gone unresolved or untreated, then the child also becomes more vulnerable to mental health physical health, and psychosocial issues related to that intergenerational transmission of trauma. So there's a, there's a saying called early adverse rearing experiences, EARS. And early adverse rearing experiences refer to child abuse. And we've talked about child abuse or physical abuse, which is a problem worldwide. Like this is not... This is not a small problem. This is a huge problem. And it's defined as neglect or physical, sexual, or emotional mistreatment or abuse of children. Sound like adverse childhood experiences? Yes, because we have physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, physical abuse, and neglect. We've pretty much covered the first, the personal side of the adverse childhood experiences list. Okay. So we can, we know that if this is the experience of a child and if it goes untreated or unresolved, that story will get carried on to the next generation. I love to use Harlow as, you know, kind of this running theme in trauma because he really did provide us with so much information and I feel like it honors the poor baby monkeys that had to suffer and the mamas that had to suffer through his his research. But it, it also really opened up so much information to us about understanding attachment relationships, love, trauma, and its impact from one generation to the next. So Harlow's monkeys, in, in the natural environment, in a natural environment, infant and juvenile monkeys are supposed to be active when they join their social um, play in their peer groups. So think about it. Like think about when you see monkeys, especially young monkeys, That they they are very social and they like to play with each other and they go and chase each other and do things together. However, interestingly, monkeys raised in early adverse rearing environments, so abusive households, monkey households, show decreased social playing. So, what does this tell us about humans? That it's probably true that being raised in an ear type of household an early adverse rearing environment, that there's gonna be an impact on our social development and interactions with the world and other people and, fam- and our family. So we're gonna watch a video coming up. Uh, let's go to the next slide and I'll explain the video. So what happens is we already saw with Harlow's research that isolated monkeys showed less or even no contact playing at all. Remember, if you think back to the monkey that was raised with no caregiver and how that monkey was literally just completely living inside its own head. The monkey that was raised with no contact, had no way of interacting socially with anybody else. So that's a, that's a huge trauma in growing up. So lack of sufficient social interaction led to the fact that ear-exposed monkeys could not successfully adapt to living in a large social group. Imagine you know, if you're raised in a, an abusive environment, then your ability to engage in social, in social groups is going to be much harder. So trigger warning, this video we're going to watch, it's eight minutes long, is, you know, it's, it's a little bit sad and heartbreaking. So view it at, you know, View it without warning, get your tissue ready. But here we go. Let's watch this video.
1: I'll see you in section two. Peanut was found on a palm oil plantation. He was very, very tiny. He wasn't strong enough to survive. So something terrible must have happened to separate him from his mother. And
2: he would have surely died. Luckily, Peanut was brought into the center. Like every new arrival, he spent three months in quarantine to ensure he's free of diseases that could infect the other orangutans.
1: Hi, sweetie, how you doing?
2: It's not just his contemporaries who could be endangered. Humans and orangutans share 97% of the same DNA, which means some illnesses can also be passed between the species. Come on, open, open. Nice, normal, lymph nodes normal. Lung sounds okay. The last hurdle before release from quarantine is a temperature check. 37 degrees C is the normal average. If he's more than 0.7 of a degree over that, Peanut won't be leaving today. Okay,
1: temperature 37.3.
2: Okay, Peanut,
1: very healthy. For the first time, he's going to be introduced to the great outdoors, and we're delighted. (laughs) Come on, baby. You can do this, Peanut.
2: At last, this is little Peanut's big moment. Now, where are you going, Peanut? Has he got what it takes to make it through training all the way to being released back into the wild?
1: No, you have to let go, Peanut. I'm trying to get Peanut to hold on to the rope rather than holding on to me. Have you got it, Peanut? Have you got it? No, you haven't got it. He doesn't want to hold on the rope. There, you're free!
2: Peanut is over a year old and by now in the wild babies of his age are starting to explore on their own moving away from their mothers for short periods and having a go at climbing but peanut was often too young to know what he's supposed to do
1: you can move he doesn't know what to do at the moment their natural instinct is to hold on to the mother's fur.
2: Without his mum, Tiny Peanut is utterly lost.
1: Oh, he's crying. Oh, he's shaking.
2: Human instinct is to comfort a crying baby.
1: He doesn't like it.
2: But Sue must keep her distance. You have
1: to be tough, you have to make them do the things that they don't want to do. What about this one here? How else are they going to learn? How are they going to cope when they go to this big, scary place called the forest? Such a little boy. Come on, Peanut.
2: Even with some encouragement, Peanut's enthusiasm for climbing Is somewhat lacking. Back in the nursery, three days after his first tearful experience in forest school, it's time for 15 month old orphan Peanut to have another go at climbing. And this time he's got company. Fellow baby Tonduo is showing how it should be done. Tonduo, go, go. Whereas Peanut is yet to be convinced. No matter how hard he's encouraged, Peanut takes a firm anti climbing stance. Climb? Oh, you're angry to me. Learn how to climb and eventually loses his tiny temper. Our peanut's unenthusiastic attitude to learning an essential orangutan skill is beginning to cause concern. Peanut, peanut. The reason for the little orangutan's lackluster performance soon becomes clear. He's come down with the flu.
1: This morning, he got a nasal uh, discharge, as you can see, and diarrhea, and he's coughing, he coughs. With a baby so young, this is very, very serious, and we just need to make sure we do everything we can for him.
2: Oh, pain. Orangutans get a very similar strain of flu to humans, and it's just as dangerous for the vulnerable.
1: Peanut, how are you today? t It's high temperature, so we have medicine for
2: him. At just over a year old, Peanut's immune system isn't robust enough to fend off the virus on its own.
1: So this is to control the diarrhea. And the other one is an uh, antibiotic. Okay, sorry, sorry. Mm-mm-mm. Okay. Pandai. Oh Okay, one, two, three. Sorry, 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 sorry,
2: sorry, sorry. Oh, baby, baby, sorry, sorry. Okay, sweetie, sorry. The next few days will be crucial for peanut.
1: <laughs> peanut is getting better today. It's no more discharged from the nose. Eating well. So that's good. Wow, you have a big Tommy, my friend. Peanut's over his flu. We've got the results back, and he's clear.
2: It's fantastic news. Dr Diana's convinced he's good to go, which unfortunately for reluctant pupil Peanut means a return to forest school. After some time spent considering his position and a short comfort break... Go, Peanut! Peanut goes for gold like a champion climber.
1: Mm -hmm. It's wonderful to see him making these steps. Good boy, Peanut! Peanut has changed unrecognizably.
0: All right, welcome to section two after that video with the darling little peanut. And this section is about evolutionary attachments and relationships. But I wanna comment on the video that you just watched. And the video really shows how, when, when a baby doesn't have been that early attachment relationship and that person to support their trajectory of development, It can incredibly hinder their health as we saw, which is is consistent with what we know about the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study, right? ACEs, adversity in early childhood or adversity in childhood affects somebody's mental health and physical health. Well, look how vulnerable Peanut is on a physical level. He has illness as well as on a social and emotional level where he is just not having the climbing thing. He just doesn't, he doesn't know how to do it and he doesn't have the social skills to engage with the other monkeys in forest school. And so, yes, he is coming along and thank goodness for the reserve providing massive levels of not only physical health care but also forest school and the mental health care support that peanut needs in order to possibly go into living in the wild in the forest down the road personally i don't think he's going to ultimately live in the wild in the forest because i think that the the Breaches early on are too severe and that he's not going to be able to catch up at that level. And remember, if and when Peanut becomes a parent, if he is the one who is sharing how to become a successful monkey in the wild or a successful climber in the wild, he's going to struggle more than a baby that was raised in a affectionate attached relationship from the very beginning, where, where a baby was seeing and engaging in that same social behavior from early, early on, not starting all the way a year, 15, 15 months in starting, starting the process like Peanut did. So I hope that makes sense. But Anyway, good to know that Peanut did finally learn how to start to climb and hopefully he will make great strides. Okay, maybe we'll do an update on Peanut down the road. All right, relationships and relationship attachments are evolutionary. What does that mean? Attachment is an affectional bond or tie between an individual And an attachment figure, usually a parent, often a mother, but definitely a caregiver. The main idea is that the child builds a relationship with at least one primary person, so important to have a primary caregiver, and learns how to develop normal social and emotional behaviors within that relational dance. And we saw how that didn't, that was totally interrupted in Peanut's life. He didn't have that primary caregiver. He was isolated because of illness. And so he didn't have normal social-emotional interactions to learn from in order to understand what a relational dance even is. So what does this mean? That we have personal relationships, familial relationships, and societal relationships. Each one individually can cause trauma and they're all intergenerational. So if a personal trauma happens to a child, it often is a consequence of a familial trauma, abuse in the family, uh, misuse of alcohol or drugs, potential mental illness, any of the ACEs. And then that leads to a societal trauma or a societal problem like being unhoused or not having resources of of some kind, which then cause trauma on a big, much more social level. All of these things are intergenerational. They then become passed on from one generation to the next generation until we raise it to consciousness and begin to solve the problems at the root. Intergenerational trauma. When a young teen mom has suffered adversity, she then passes that trauma or adversity on to her baby. Intentionally, of course not. Unintentionally, absolutely. Epigenetically, very likely. We'll talk about that in module three, but I just want to start throwing a few of those terms out to you so you know that you're going to learn about epigenetics and how we turn on and off the switches of particular genes based on our experiences from one generation to the next. So, but a young teenage mom, it doesn't even have to be a young teenage mom. It can be any, any parent who suffers adversity can pass that adversity on to their child through intergenerational transmission. All right. Ghosts versus trauma. These are two very different concepts and they often get mixed up. So Trauma is an external event. It actually happens to your body. It happens to you. It's when there's an event, a traumatic event that actually activates your stress response system, fight, flight, freeze, fawn. It, it's an event that is real and it creates that stress response where I got to get out of here or I need to fight my way to get free and, you know, we're activated. Our blood pressure goes up, our uh, sugar reserves are dumped in order to be able to get away or we freeze. It's, an, it's a real true event that happens. Now, ghosts are pre-verbal memories. So children don't have language to talk about things that happen to them or their memories until they're about, you know, three years old, and maybe older. So what happens with ghosts are, these are pre-verbal memories that are unconsciously recollected or remembered by the child, and cause conflicts in the relationship between parents and partners, or then partners, the baby and the parent are partners. So that relational, that relational connection. Ghosts, versus trauma. So, ghosts reflect early conflicts in the parent-child relationship, and ghosts are also memories that also occur pre-verbally and unknown to the parent, but are unconsciously recollected by the child and cause conflicts in their relationship. So, a baby that's difficult to soothe is a conflict in a relationship and what the parent probably would not know is that that could be the consequence of an unconscious recollection for the child that's a ghost, ghost versus trauma. Ghosts are carried from one generation to the next until they're brought into the light and talked about with courage and compassion maybe there's sexual abuse, maybe there's physical abuse, maybe there's emotional abuse, maybe there's somebody in the family who struggles with mental illness. Whatever the ghosts are from the past, until they're brought into the light, it's very difficult to not carry those patterns from one generation to the next. Ghosts are more about perception from the past and learning to translate the feeling and story into reality that both parent and child can hold sacred and true. Because understanding what really happened for the parent or the child may not be what really happened. But being able to come together and hold a story that makes sense to both of them is where healing actually begins. Ghost versus trauma again. Parents love their children and want them to be happy, but they get lost in the fear of the past and the unknown. So this causes them to repeat patterns of abuse or conflict without even realizing that they're repeating the cycles of trauma. So a parent who maybe came from a family where physical abuse was, was practiced or common, then they become a parent. And even though they've grown up saying, I'll never do this to my child. I'll never do this to my child. I'll never do this to my child. Guess what? They grow up and they do exactly the same thing to their child. And they do it under the exact same guise of um, I want what's best for my child. And this is how I think I get that. Because I believe even parents who are abusive towards their children for the most part actually are just using the tools that they have because they don't have a very big toolbox and they're, they love their children, they want them to grow up and they want them to be happy, but in order to get them to do what they need them to do, they need to use abusive measures and that's not true, it's not accurate, but because of lack of understanding and lack of consciousness and awareness, that's all they have. And so that's why when we can talk about trauma and ghosts and elevating, elevating that information in the relationship, we can really change the trajectory of families' lives. Okay, so the story doesn't end here, there's a story about rats, and we're gonna. This is this is fascinating research, and we will again. Like I'm gonna say, we're gonna dig deeper into these epigenetic understanding in module three. But I want to start to plant the seeds here in module two around intergenerational trauma and how this, how these messages get transmitted to the next generation. So if we take a baby rat pup. Then a pup that's raised by an anxious, low nurturing mother becomes, guess what? An anxious, low nurturing adult and mother. Okay, that makes sense, right? A pup that's raised by a relaxed, high nurturing mother becomes a relaxed and high nurturing adult mother. Now, when we transfer the low nurturing baby, the baby from a low nurturing mother, and we put it with a high nurturing mother, what we find is that that baby then actually will become a high nurturing mother rather than a low nurturing mother. So that's fascinating. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. So how does that genetic transmission work? high and low-licking mama rats. There's hundreds of genes that are activated or differently expressed based on the caregiving behavior of the mother. This is true with humans too. This is true with monkeys. This is true with with rats. And rats mature so much more quickly than humans do that they're a really good animal to, to research in order to understand predictable uh, generational differences. So the changes are so stable and predictable that when we look at an old rat's brain, we can tell if it had a high or a low licking environment, aka mother's love. So let's say we take a, we take a baby rat and it was raised by a, low, a high licking mama and Then we let that rat live out its life. And we then look at its brain after it's died. And we can actually tell because there are neurological, the brain is actually physically different. Just like we saw in the last um, class, there are completely, remember the size of the brain was smaller in the abused child. And there were uh, spaces in the brain that shouldn't be there. Well, same thing. We can tell how that early interaction went for a very old rat back when it was an infant. That's fascinating and and very useful for us in understanding how to move forward and build resilient communities and resilient people and invincible children. So it's exciting and it's important that we're able to put this stuff into practice in real life. So predict and promote. We have the capacity to predict and promote healthy development across generations by focusing on these early caregiving and observations of behavior. So when we have when we're able to support early development in a loving, predictable consistent safe way guess what we get predictable behavior in, in so many ways and that really is at the heart of building resilience in not only children not only families but also systemically in communities if we commit at that level so it's super exciting this is the end of section two i'll see you over in section three Hi, everybody. Welcome back. We're just starting section three, and this is called, this is about responsive care and really resilience. So babies are so emotionally responsive and capable of eliciting engagement from caring adults. What does that mean? It means that babies from the very beginning of life, instantaneously at birth, make eye contact, and engage a loving caregiver, because if they're not able to make a connection with somebody in the environment, what's going to happen? That baby's going to die. Babies cannot survive on their own without somebody taking care of them. And so this is just wired in genetically to humanity, really. So Eliciting engagement from caring adults. Babies run the show in a lot of ways, which is really cool. And I love that. So, this, though, is what makes children think that they're invincible, even though they're highly vulnerable. So, that means that babies are vulnerable because they can't survive without a loving adult, but because they have this power to engage with an adult and make them do things like this daddy or whoever he is to this baby, just, you know, get him to, to be engaged with this baby makes the baby feel totally invincible. Like they can do anything in the world. And that's what we want babies to feel like and young children to feel like, because guess what? Then they do grow up and they conquer the world in wonderful ways. Without a relationship, the baby is highly vulnerable. Just like I was saying, if somebody's not there to pick that baby up, change diapers, love and cuddle and talk to and do all those things that we need for survival, the baby is not going to survive. The baby will die. And that's just part of the evolutionary process is that eye contact immediately activates attachment and then. Pulls an adult in or a caregiver in to take care of that baby, which is super cool. And that's intergenerational transmission of attachment. So, and how people attach is transmitted from one generation to the next. Raised to be resilient. We, the adults in the world, control the trajectory of growing either vulnerable or invincible humans with resilience the ability to overcome adversity, with resilience, competence, and purpose. Competence and purpose are part of being resilient. When we teach children that they are competent and that they have a purpose, that leads to resilience and their ability to use their competence and purpose to overcome adversity as they grow and change. So we know how to do this. We just have to start doing it in a very systematic way from the beginning of life, where we've often focused at the beginning of life. We haven't focused on the beginning of life. Instead, we focus on what people do later on in life. And we don't recognize that the power of what people are capable of later on in life comes from the beginning of life who is impacted by intergenerational trauma intergenerational trauma is best described as the person raised by a scary individual passes on a heightened alert system that's the toxic stress regulating system they pass that heightened alert system to their children because of epigenetic changes but also because humans respond, develop, and adapt to the environment they grow up in. So doesn't that make sense that if you're being raised by somebody who is, has a heightened alert system, who is operating in toxic stress zone all the time, that the way that you would adapt to that environment is to also have a heightened alert system on most of the time, your toxic stress system. And that's how intergenerational trauma gets passed from one, from parents to children and on ongoing. That's how we have anxious parents, have anxious children, have anxious grandchildren. Who is impacted by intergenerational trauma? If the primary caregiver is always on high alert, the child will carry forward that ghost from the past. So activated mama or activated caregiver is always on high, high alert. The child will carry that forward as a ghost because it interferes with the child and the mama's relationship. Remember, a ghost is a disruption in the relationship between two people, the child and the caregiver. And so that ghost is created Because the parent has a heightened alert system, toxic stress alert system on all the time. And that interferes with the the child being close and connected to that parent, or at least as close and connected to that parent as they would be if that parent were able to calm and soothe themselves out of that zone at least some of the time. So... All right. Intergenerational systemic trauma. Trauma does not just live in individuals. It can live in organizations. It can be a systemic problem. So trauma is more than a personal event or an experience, but it's also a catastrophic failure of our civic responsibility to protect people especially children from adverse childhood experiences. What does that mean? It means that there are systems in place that are catastrophically harmful to children, and we need to fix those systems so they don't continually perpetuate intergenerational trauma in individual lives, but in a systemic way because we do things that aren't good for children because of outdated laws or rules. Societal transmission of trauma. There's also social and systemic inequalities that affect racially, socially, and economically marginalized groups. And so whether there's trauma within the family or not, There is trauma within our social structure because of systemic inequality due to racism, social inequality, and economically marginalized groups. So we don't all have the same access to care or to resources, which can be a source of trauma. And then that trauma if you don't have access to resources, then it's difficult for the next generation to have access to resources. This intergenerational systemic trauma cycle. We have racism, we have various forms of discrimination that we have to address at a governmental level. We can't address them on an individual level. There are systems in place that we have to address. We know that it's essential to protect people from trauma caused by inequity, poverty, and inaccessibility and lack of resources. There are are lots of examples of this. One would be the infant mortality rate for black infants is much higher than it is for white infants or even infants of other races. Same with, same with mothers. Black mothers' mortality rate during pregnancy is much higher than it is in other races. The LGBT community, the LGBTQ community also suffers from discrimination in terms of work, uh, housing, intergenerational systemic tr- trauma. We understand scientifically and psychologically how infants develop and how families evolve in safe systems, yet we still hold on to these archaic ideas about child development and family support. Oh, pull yourself up by the bootstraps and, you know, you can be a success. Everybody can be a success. Well, that is not true. We know that's not true. Eric. Spare the rod, spoil the child. You know, you have to spank children in order to get them to do what you need them to do. And that that's the, the, those are, that's the best way to raise children. That's not true. We have research that proves that corporal punishment actually causes way more problems than it does any good at all. And so we have to start to align what we know scientifically and psychologically about how infants and children grow and develop with our practices in raising infants and children and educating them in our society. That's how we're going to battle this systemic trauma and change our generational trajectory from one generation to the next. Okay, this is super cool and I hope you're as excited about it as I am. So we got permission from the Center on the Developing Child at Harvard University to use their interactive game that they developed. And it's a resilience, build resilience in the community. And so when you navigate to this on the course menu of our class, it's an interactive game showing how various systems work together to either mitigate or exacerbate adverse childhood experiences within a community. So maybe they have farmers markets, maybe they don't, maybe there's access to healthcare, maybe there's not. So you're going to get to play this game and look at the kinds of things that actually help and hurt children and communities in relation to resilience. So, definitely go and do this when you're when you when you're out of this class navigate over to the course window, course menu and you will see how it works. So, and give Harvard a, you know, big thumbs up for not only letting us use it but for letting you use it for free and for creating it in the first place. So, awesome, awesome. All right, it's all about relationships. So there are interventions that we can implement across society to ensure better outcomes for children and families. Unfortunately, we don't do it yet. I'll give you one example right off the bat. School lunch. School lunch should just be provided to all kids at school. It should be healthy. It should be nutritious. Nutritious. It should be in the morning and in the afternoon, and maybe send a snack home too, because we know having healthy food helps children learn. And yet, we still make parents fill out the income form in a lot of places, in most places, in fact, in order to qualify for school free, for free school lunch. This is one of those places. We could implement a better way to do things, and we should because one just think about the administration of that process it costs probably more money than it would to just provide healthy food for all children and isn't it just the right thing to do in the anyway absolutely it is so there is a social equity and a justice reality that we're going to have to face as a culture and society if we want to evolve. We have to recognize that there are places in our culture where justice does not prevail and that we need to balance out social equity across race, gender, sexual orientation, religion, and other ability differences that we come to terms with as we've grown and changed and learned through science that make a difference in all of our well-being and are the well-being of future generations. So again, it's all about relationships. That is a wrap. Thanks for watching. I'll see you in the next class.